Well, hey, good morning, everyone. Welcome to Colossae Hillsborough. Uh, I, my name is not Justin. Um, Justin is uh, the lead pastor here, and he is on sabbatical. If you're new with us, I am uh, the, the Beaverton guy. So I'm leading our Beaverton plant this September uh, with Colossae and excited about uh, what God is doing as he prepares us to multiply again as a church body uh, into central Beaverton. So um, with that, I uh, want to invite you, if you're in the Beaverton area and you've been praying or thinking about being a part of the Beaverton plant, uh, we have uh, our second of three vision nights. We're doing a vision night in the Beaverton Library at 6 p.m. every third Thursday of our summer months and uh, doing some hangouts as well. And you, it, we have these cards over at the community table if you want to pray with us. We've got some prayer requests and some hangout dates as well. So I'd love to get to know you if I haven't met you yet and you're uh, wanting to be a part of the Beaverton uh, story. So um, with that, uh, I want to let you know that we are a part of, or we're in the middle of a series on the book of Psalms. So if you're new with us, we're, we're working our way through the Psalms, exploring how the Psalms give voice to our souls. The Psalms are interesting in that they're, it's a collection of 150 ancient Hebrew poems, and uh, together they actually form a story. They, they work as one whole story, and uh, they also are, are the Bible's prayer book. We learn to pray through the Psalms. Um, they actually were mankind's words to God that have become God's words to mankind, and we complete the circle by praying them back that the Psalms actually give voice to our souls, that Jesus himself even prayed the Psalms as his own words. In his uh, cry of desperation on the cross, he made Psalm 22 his own, as, he, uh, as the Psalms gave voice to his experience and his soul uh, to the Father. So um, there are all kinds of different Psalms, Psalms of lament that, that explore the world as it's not meant to be, and Psalms of praise, uh, lifting up God's name as he makes the world more as it, is ought, as it ought to be. Uh, and last week, you guys explored a psalm uh, that focused on spiritual drought and dryness, uh, an experience of the wilderness. And this week, we're going to change gears and actually talk about how the psalms help us voice our confidence, that we can actually have a voice that is confidence in anxious times. Now, um, one of the things uh, that... As God's people, uh, we, we live in a context, we live in a society um, that, is, uh, that is unique, right? We live in a society that I think if there was one word to describe our cultural moment, our cultural mood uh, at, at this moment in time in the modern West, I think that word would be anxious. I think we live in a profoundly anxious time. Uh, despite whatever people portray on social media, what we see is an anxious, uh, an anxious society. Uh, we saw it acutely during the 2016 election, and it just kind of continued. And it's been building for, for years and years and years. And what we have is this social imagination that is just drenched in anxiety. Um, we see it all over the place. And what has happened is the larger framing narrative that gave stability and meaning to life has been dissolving for the last couple hundred years. And now we've reached this point where meaning is entirely resting on the individual to come up with on their own, which is actually 
anxiety producing, right? Like if, if you've got to come up with what life is about by yourself, that puts you in an anxious spot, right? It's a, it's a burdensome task. And so anxiety, I think, is this mood of our times. It reveals that whatever confidence we have as a society, it's been shaken or it's shaky at best. This New York Times article I read this last week described our age of anxiety and uh, the claim this psychologist was making that each generation uh, is increasingly less able to handle uncertainty, right? which is, gives way then to anxiety. Uh, and so uh, each previous generation had a framework that provided some meaning to navigate life with in the midst of uncertainties. And what anxiety is, is it's this automatic reaction to threat, whether it's perceived or it's real. And that threat leads to this sense of uncertainty that builds what I would call a low-grade fear fever known as anxiety and stays in our system. So it's no wonder then that when we hit the Psalms, uh, they come as a breath of fresh air to souls deeply in search of a voice that can both be honest and confident in the midst of anxious times. And so this morning, as we look at Psalm 46, I want to show you kind of the nature of our anxiety, where we can find confidence, and how we gain access to it. So let's begin. Uh, Psalm 46, superscription reads, it is to the choir master of the sons of Korah, according to Alamoth, a song. Okay, so, I don't know, um, it's... A worship tune, okay? Like it's to uh, the band, the Sons of Korah, and uh, it, we even have the musical tune. It's you know to Alamoth. There you go. Figure that one out. No, you're playing it wrong. Alamoth goes no. Uh, anyway, so um, it's this worship tune. It's for use in the temple, and it goes like this: God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble. Therefore, we will not fear, though the earth gives way, though the mountains be moved into the heart of the sea, though its waters roar and foam, though the mountains tremble at its swelling. Selah. Pause. Wait. So this psalm, written uh, for the purpose of worship, um, has actually been the inspiration to uh, the, the famous A Mighty Fortress is Our God that old hymn from Martin Luther. It's a pretty famous psalm, and it begins with a statement about God. He is our refuge. He is our strength. And it moves from a statement about God to a declaration about us. We will not fear. So we believe God is this, and so we refuse to be an anxious people. And then the psalmist describes kind of the nature of things that produce fear and anxiety. He talks about the earth giving way, the mountains falling into the sea, the seas roaring and foaming and mountains trembling. Now, I don't know about you, but I don't wake up most days worried about an earthquake or mountains moving anywhere in particular or seas roaring. Um, but in the ancient Near Eastern world, the way they understood the, co- the cosmos and the way they understood uh, the world working, the ancient Near Eastern cosmology of the, the people around Israel thought it went something like this. The earth rests on the foundation of big mountains that 
go deep into a cosmic ocean. Okay? So you've got cosmic ocean, mountains, Earth sitting on top. Okay. Yeah, I, I didn't make it up. I'm just telling you the way they thought about it. Okay? And so the sea and the river in the Canaanite uh, mythology were dangerous deities that were always threatening to unleash their chaotic powers. Same in the Babylonian mythology. The Babylonians came in and took the Israelites out of their land into exile. And in a similar way, their gods were violent and uh, controls the, the, the chaos of the seas were like under the, uh, the, the rule of these vindictive, chaotic gods. Okay, and so what you have happening here is the psalmist is using this imagery of the cosmos and he's saying... Even though it seems like there's a cosmic crumble happening, we're not going to be afraid. Even though existentially you might feel like every foundational thing is coming undone, we're not going to be afraid because God's our refuge. That's what he's getting at. This imagery is painting a picture of the things we stand on, the things that are foundational to us, the things that are foundational to us in this psalm seem to be falling apart. And the psalmist is saying it's okay. Right? Uh, the psalmist is saying that if the earth is giving way and the mountains are, are trembling and the seas are raging, what he's doing is he's showing you the nature of our anxiety, the cause of our anxiety. What he's doing is he's describing the experience of your world coming undone. That's the nature of anxiety, right? The thing you stand on, the thing that bears the weight of your life, Right? It, it's coming apart, and it produces anxiety. It's this uncertainty, and he's describing what it's like when the foundations of your very life are coming apart. He's describing what it's like when a society begins to fragment and has no certainty, when everything seems chaotic. And verses 6 and 7, he describes the language of nations raging and kingdoms tottering, and so there's political and economic un- upheaval. All of these things happen when a society is unstable or fluid. Does any of this experience sound familiar to you? Like, does this sound a little bit like our moment? Right? Where there's this high degree of uncertainty, there's seemingly chaotic change. One author I read this week um, calls our moment in time liquid modernity, right? So, like, everything's fluid. Nothing's just, nothing, you can't count on anything except for change, right? Everything is fluid and liquid in our modern moment. This is the modern experience. Earth giving way, mountains moving. And so the psalmist is saying that the cause or the, the nature of our anxieties is this kind of experience. And if you're going to have confidence, and if you're going to voice confidence, you have to be able to analyze your own anxieties, Right? Or our cultural anxieties unmasks those sources of worry. Um, when we talk about what it means to be a Christian today, a, a Christ follower in our world, I would suggest to you that our, our earth has moved out from underneath us over the last 60 years in our country, 200 years in the West. And, and we live in a cultural moment that produces anxiety not only for people untethered to faith, but for many people in the church. Uh, for a morally conservative person, our moment in history feels very much like the earth is giving way. More and more, um, the, the Christian uh, identity sits at the margins of our society. 
The old ways of life that once seemed like givens have been abandoned, right? Old definitions have been redefined, re-narrated, and given up for what feels like an ethical grab bag. Put your hand in today, and who knows what you'll pull out tomorrow, right? And so, in the turmoil of all of that change, the public witness of the church has often defaulted to looking just like the character of the world, desperate for power and validation. And what has resulted, oftentimes, is the church just looks like a place full of bigoted, hateful, and stupid people. And some of that is deserved, and other bits of that are actually just what looks like foolishness to the world and is, in fact, the wisdom of God. But it's perception one way or the other. And we have all seen that it's a result of church people looking at change and reacting with anxiety. Maybe you've even been one of those people, right? Trying to preserve an old world that doesn't exist anymore and will not return. And so the language of the psalm describes that earth-shattering kind of reality. Things have moved. But what I would suggest to you the psalm is saying is that we can and must stop being anxious, that being afraid of the world changing or ground moving from underneath our feet has no place for the life of the people of God. That the language of anxiety in our public witness has absolutely no room because of who God is. So the psalmist is saying, stop fearing the earth giving way or the mountains trembling. That the realities that are uncertain for you are they actually have no bearing right, for you because of the reality that is certain. Right? The uncertain realities have no bearing on you because of the reality that is certain. And so the undoing of your known world, whether it's politically, economically, morally, who knows what, isn't actually a, a fair cause for anxiety if you understand the reality of who God is. And then if you take it and look at it on a personal level as well, there's almost certainly uncertainties in your life that threaten to undo you, right? Like every one of us has them. If I learned anything from my dad, it's this, that there's always something, right? This was a phrase I always heard him say because there was always something that threatens to undo your sense of peace or security or whatever, right? If you're looking at your circumstances to be your confidence, there's always something that will threaten it. And so um, that's why where you find refuge actually matters. You see, um, we don't use that language of refuge or fortress much in our culture, right? Wars get fought somewhere else, right? But that doesn't mean that we don't have refuges. Ref- yeah, I think that's how you say it. Um, we, we all find a refuge. We all find some form of help in trouble someplace. We secure ourselves somehow. But not every refuge is created equal, right? Um, I may go to, go to food initially for comfort in the midst of anxiety, but it won't be as helpful as facing the cause of my anxiety and unpacking it with somebody who loves me, right? And naming it and dealing with it. I could eat an entire bag of tater tots, but it won't help actually anything. Or money might seem like a good refuge until you realize that it can't hold up your weight. 
and it's fleeting, and we have no control. St. Augustine, in preaching on this particular psalm, said that uh, there are some refuges wherein there is no strength, that when we flee to them, we are not strengthened but weakened. So where do you run in your uncertainty? Like, where do you go when you find there's a threat or a danger or the earth is shaking for you? Where do you run? And do you know where you run? Do you know what your refuges are? You see, become, we become regularly anxious. Uh, um, I'm sorry, let me say that this way. What we become regularly anxious about reveals where we are looking for refuge. And the biblical description of that type of living is called idolatry, right? where we've set up a, a false god who's not load-bearing, who can't actually take the weight. Uh, and so this psalm is helping us pay attention to the nature of anxiety, to see that anxiety happens when our foundational realities crack. So where do we go for confidence? Where do we go for confidence? Well, the psalm begins its statement about the nature of God first. Right? He is a refuge. He's not sometimes a refuge. He doesn't just act as a refuge. He is one. That's his character, his nature. And he's our refuge. He's not just a refuge in the abstract esoteric. He's personally engaged to be your refuge, our refuge, and strength. And he's present, not distant, in times of trouble. He, he doesn't need you to flip on a bat signal right, for, for him to come be present. Like He's already with you. I, I learned that trouble um, could be helpful in the spiritual life as a teenager. I learned to pray in the midst of what felt like trouble, and I learned to find a present God in the midst of what felt like trouble as a teenager where I was a paper boy. Um, it doesn't sound like a dangerous vocation at um, first glance, but... I happened to live in a very hilly neighborhood growing up, um, and you know you're you're doing this on a BMX bike, so you you know you're not exactly gearing for hills. You're just gutting it out up and down fairly large hills as um, a decently lazy teenager. And so, uh, at the top, uh, the the highest part of the paper route was a long flat stretch with several just really angry dogs that liked to chase you and bite and snarl and bark. and So that was scary at the top. And then down at the bottom, there was a kid named Damon, which also means demon. Uh, and uh, Damon was a couple years older than me, and he was really good at throwing rocks. Dogs at the top, Damon at the bottom throwing rocks. Figure that one out, right? And so my paper route actually felt like a scary place. And I actually learned to pray, and I discovered that there's a God who is present in the midst of what felt like danger to my 13-year-old self. I don't know why I told you that story. But the entire posture of this psalm is one of confidence, precisely because of who God is, that he is present, which we discover when we engage him in prayer. So this first stanza of the psalm, it uses the language of the natural world. That God is over the earth and the mountains and the seas and that he is sovereign, that they are subject to him, not the other way around. 
And then in the second stanza, we get a different perspective. In verse 4, it says, There is a river whose streams make glad the city of God, the holy habitation of the Most High. God is in the midst of her. She shall not be moved. God will help her when morning dawns. The nations rage and the kingdoms totter. He utters his voice and the earth melts. The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress. Pause. Selah. So the psalmist moves from describing the natural world and God's sovereignty over it and this cosmic level danger that God actually, he's got it under control, then moves to this image of Jerusalem or the city of God, Zion, and it's now, it's assaulted, right? It's besieged, perhaps, by enemies. And God is in the midst of her. He's not far off. Um, and so there's this language about the river whose streams make glad the city of God. Like, what is that about? Right? Well, the Bible's actually full of interesting river imagery. In the Old Testament, the prophet Ezekiel writes about uh, he stands in the midst of an exiled people, and he writes about God's presence, right? And he has visions about God's presence. You see, the city of God was safe so long as God dwelt in her midst. And at one point, we see a vision of God's glory departing the temple, and the, the city is, is sacked. And then Ezekiel opens his, his prophetic vision with an image of God in the midst of the people in Babylon, that God had left Jerusalem, but he had not left his people. And then in chapter 47 of Ezekiel, he describes the temple, right? Now rebuilt or something, and it's his future vision of a river flowing out of the temple, watering the land. It's cleansing the land of its idolatry, and it's giving life to the land in its barrenness. And so this imagery is imagery that Jesus then picks up. And at this uh, feast, this Jewish feast, where water is symbolically poured out, Jesus stands up, and this is what John says. On the last day of the feast, the great day, Jesus stood up and cried out, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Now, this he said about the Spirit, whom those who believed in him were to receive. For as yet, the Spirit had not been given, because Jesus was not yet glorified. It was before he was crucified and raised. And so, and again, by the way, in the revelation of John, the final pages of the Bible story, there is a river again, but this time it's a symbol of a new creation, God dwelling with humanity, healing the nations with his eternal presence. Right? dwelling with the redeemed humanity. And so when we read that there is a river that makes glad the city of God, what the psalmist is looking forward to and what he's talking about is the idea that where God is, where his spirit dwells, there is joy, there is gladness, there is life, and there is healing in spite of what may be happening on the outside. Right? What's happening on the inside is God's in their midst dwelling and making glad. And so the psalmist right, is looking forward to a day when God's Holy Spirit will dwell in his people. The city of God, right? God's bride, the Christ's church. 
I, I don't know why I was talking about MTV Cribs with somebody this week, but I, I, it came up. And uh, was that with you, Lord? Oh, okay, I don't know. Anyway, we, we were talking about MTV Cribs, and it got me thinking about all these like weird folks who just loved showing off their houses, and it was like, I, I don't know. Like I, I, When I have guests over, I'm never like, come check out my bedroom, right? I'm always like, yep, that's my couch. Can I get you a drink? Like, I don't want to show you my whole house. But these people, want to, they want to show off everything. And what's interesting is this is their crib. And what I, I take it or leave it as an illustration, but God, I think, is saying here, look, you are my crib, and I am showing myself off in the midst of you. You are my people. You are my dwelling place, and I'm going to show off my glory through you. And so uh, where Christ is, Right? Where he dwells in his people, the text says, she shall not be moved. The church will not be moved. The people of God will not be moved. If she is besieged, he is besieged within her, Spurgeon said. Right? He's not threatened. And so often it's the things in our lives that the enemy wants to use to make you afraid that God wants to use to show you his nearness and his tenderness and his mercy. That shameful relationship that becomes now this place where God has given you wisdom and his nearness and mercy are on display and delivering you through it. That habit of weakness for you where you find that his grace is sufficient and he gives you strength. Right? These places in your life, you're like, oh, I'm afraid this will crop up this way or if somebody finds out Ah, just they'll never be accepted. And these are the places where God says, I want to redeem that. That's, that's not something I look past. That's something I come to redeem so that you are actually stronger by knowing my goodness and my grace and my mercy. And so think about it this way. If God defeated death by death on a cross, will he not that much more bring about good in our lives by the things that seem threatening? Like if he can overcome the most anxiety-producing reality of our lives, which is death, right, to bring hope. Will he not that much more do that with other, much smaller things? So this is what the psalmist is saying about where we find confidence. It's in the God who dwells with us in our midst, in, his, in, in, our, in us. Right? So that's, that's where confidence can be found, right? in the presence of God who is a refuge, who dwells with his people, Right? We are no less secure than God is. Right? But how do we actually access this confidence in the midst of anxious times? How does it become our confidence such that our souls can voice it authentically? Look at what the psalmist says in verse 8. Come, behold the works of Yahweh, how he has brought desolations on the earth. He makes wars cease to end. Uh, I'm sorry, he makes wars cease to the end of the earth. He breaks the bow and shatters the spear. He burns the chariots with fire. Be still and know that I am God. I will be exalted among the nations. I will be exalted in the earth. Yahweh Sabaot, or Yahweh of hosts, God of the angel armies, right? That's what he's saying, is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress. Rest. Selah. And so, it's one thing to see and name the sources of our anxiety. It's another thing to see where our confidence might 
theoretically be found, but it's an entirely different thing to gain access to that confidence, to be in on that confidence. So how do we make God our refuge such that we can voice confidence just like the psalmists? It's beautiful how this text works. It moves from description, right, the God who dwells in his people, right, who is a refuge, to an invitation. Come, behold the works of the Lord. Come behold. That's the invitation. It's a profound invitation into personal communion from a personal God. It's an invitation to go from knowing some things about God right, to experiencing the reality of God. Come behold. Taste and see, if you will. And so the psalmist tells us what to do. Come behold the works of the Lord. Well, what are the works of the Lord that we are to behold? What does he do? The psalmist says that he makes wars cease, that he breaks the weapons of war, that he, the bow and the spear and the chariots, they're, they're ruined, right? They have no more need. And, and you think back in Israel's memory, God had done this. He's done this in the quintessential work of salvation in their memory, which is the Exodus. He's saved them from the power of Egypt. He's thrashed Egypt's chariots, right? And he has rescued them. They've seen God's deliverance when the morning dawns. Think in Isaiah when uh, the people who are besieged by the Assyrian Empire, surrounded for, I think, months, right? And, and, and maybe perhaps years, and at this point in their story, they're doomed until they wake up in the morning and the entire Assyrian camp has been routed and decimated. This is what they wake up to. This is the work that God does. And so what is the psalmist saying? It is the work of God to bring an end to enmity, to bring wickedness and sin and the destructive power of evil to an end. But how? Is it a finished work? Well, yes and no, right? Uh, on one hand, God does make wars end, but there's still wars, aren't there? Right? It's, there's a coming day when bloodshed and tears will end, but it's not here yet. But on the other hand, it's a yes, because the psalmist is doing something I think quite profound. He's pointing us forward to the one who will break the spear by receiving the end of the spear into his own side. You see, Jesus Christ is the one who didn't overcome war with war, but overcame war with loving self-sacrifice. He ended the deepest, most long-running enmity, spiritual enmity, by receiving its consequence. You see, the psalmist's voice changes here. It becomes God's own voice in verse 10. Uh, be still and know that I am God. I will be exalted in the nations. I will be exalted in the earth. This is the imperfect tense, which means it's an, uh, it's an action that's unfolding. It's not done yet. And so the drama of God's exaltation and glory reaches its climax down the line from this psalm. It comes in John 12 when Jesus says, Now is the hour for the Son of Man to be glorified. When he says, my soul is troubled, what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour? No, for this purpose I have come to this hour. Father, glorify your name. Then a voice came from heaven. I have glorified it and will glorify it again. The crowd that stood there and heard it said that it had thundered, and others said an angel had spoken to him. But Jesus answered and said, This voice has come for your sake, not mine. 
Now is the judgment of this world. Now will the ruler of this world be cast out. And I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. You see, God's exaltation we behold in Christ is uh, something that comes by way of his suffering to make atonement for what's wrong in us and in the world. Paul says the exact same thing This kind of God who is exalted is a humble God. He says this in Philippians 2, that Christ, who being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of the Father. When we come and we behold the works of the Lord and we see that he is exalted in his humiliation, something in us melts. This isn't just a God who says, well, be good and get in line because I'm big, right? Which is also not a great parenting tactic, right? It backfires every time. No, he says, yes, I'm big, but I became utterly naked and humble and vulnerable for you. You see, when we see his nature of self-giving love, that he's utterly humble, that he's brought judgment by bearing it for us, for you, are we not absolutely enraptured by his beauty and his goodness? See, this message would be a burden to you if it were not for verse 10. This message would be, you know what? God's a refuge, so toughen up. Get over it. Move past your anxiety and your fear and work it out, bro. Right? That would be the message. It'd be like that Bob Newhart sketch from, I think it's the 70s, where he is at a desk and he's a counselor and a couple comes in or a lady comes in for counseling. I can't remember. It's been a while since I've seen it. They unpack their problems and he just looks at them and goes, Stop it! Just stop! Stop it, right? He just gets angry and says, just stop it. That's of no help to you. It's not good news. It's bad news, right? That's you got to come up with something to fix your problem. Well, this is good news. He says, come and behold the works of the Lord, right? And he says in verse 10, be still and know that I am the Lord. We have to come to him in order for him to be our foundation and our refuge, There's a Puritan preacher named Thomas Manton that said gratitude is this. He says it's the fruit of deep and ponderous meditation. Glances never warm the heart. Glances never warm the heart. I love that, right? It is our serious and deliberate thoughts which affect us. To be ravished with love, affected with love, always thinking of love, that is a work behooving saints. Glances don't warm the heart. Just a mere glance at the cross will not warm your heart. We'll never melt the cold paralysis of our anxieties unless our hearts are warmed by the infectious love of Christ. And so that kind of foundation requires that we accept his invitation to be still and to know that he's God. He becomes our refuge as we behold his works which result in our stillness. One of the most beautiful nuances to this psalm is that the the word be still, is it means relax. I like that. Um, it's just come 
Behold the works of the Lord, right? And relax, knowing he's God. I was recently on vacation with my family. I think we spent about 50% of the time in the water, right? Ocean or pool. And uh, my youngest kid did not really swim at the beginning of the trip. So 10 days, she went from sinking to swimming, right? And every day she would say, can we do that thing? Can we do that thing where I don't wear floaties? And I like come to you. I'm like, yeah, it's called swimming. We've, we've like paid for swimming lessons, and you like now you just yeah, I want to do that thing anyway. So here we are doing that thing where she actually goes from like just sinking to swimming, and it's pretty cool. But one of the things we worked on was floating. And if you have been swimming long, floating is second nature to you. You just do it, right? And you don't have to think about it. But think about how terrifying it is when you're five. And what do you do? What do you instinctively do when you're in something that kills you? You flail, right? Like you flail around. Like you, you think it's on you to keep, a, like to not die, right? But in reality, all you got to do is like toes up, belly up, head back, arms out, and do nothing, and you're fine. Like it's the doing nothing that actually makes you most safe. It's the doing other things, the flailing that kills you. Right? Floating is completely um, like not instinctual for us. And spiritually, our instincts is to flail, right? As soon as there's a threat, as soon as there's anything, I'm going to secure myself with my effort, with my goodness, with my intelligence, with my success, whatever that is. And we flail about to try to secure ourselves. And what Jesus would say to us, right? The Jesus who says that he is our rest, that the psalmist is saying here, is saying, actually, just relax. Lean back and relax into the God who will hold you. Float on him. Become vulnerable. Head back, arms out, relax. See, we make God our refuge when we behold what he's done and see that it is enough to sustain us and keep us afloat. We stop flailing about to earn his love, or prop our lives up and secure ourselves. But we rest in his ability to hold us. And so we relax into his immeasurable grace and to his overwhelming love. And so this morning what I want to do is, before we go to the tables to receive the bread and the cup and symbolically portray the free grace of God that sustains and nourishes us through the shed blood of Christ and the crucified body of Christ. I want to just pause and ask you to relax this morning before God, just to relax yourself, to quiet yourself, to just behold who Christ is and what he's done for you. Just give yourself a moment to just be still before him. Perhaps you might want to ask him, is there something you want to show me about yourself that I've maybe been missing? Is there something you want to say to me this morning about where my confidence and security really is. And before we step into that moment of just being quiet before God, I want to just read to you two stanzas from the hymn that was inspired by this psalm. Two stanzas of Martin Luther's that remind us why it is we can relax in the midst of anxious times. Did we, in our own strength, confide our striving would be losing. We're not the right man on our side, right? the man of God's own choosing. 
Dost ask who that may be? Christ Jesus, it is he. Lord Sabaoth is his name, from age to age the same, and we must win the battle. And though this world with devils filled should threaten to undo us, we will not fear, for God hath willed his truth to triumph through us. The prince of darkness grim, we tremble not for him. His rage we can endure, for lo, his doom is sure. One little word shall fell him. And that word became flesh and made his dwelling amongst us. He has redeemed you. His spirit lives in you. And your future is sure in Christ. So relax into the one who is your refuge. 